y'all. It's your host, Avery Carl. Welcome to the short-term show special episode series on Scottsdale, Arizona. So in these 10 episodes, we are going to take a deep dive into the Scottsdale market, but I want to note a couple of things for you guys first. So if you are looking for current income numbers and current purchase prices, or you want to set up a search of Scottsdale properties, you can do that at our website, theshorttermshop.com. You can also connect with us there to get connected with our Scottsdale agents or any of our other markets, any agents in the other markets that we work in. So hope you guys enjoy our Scottsdale mini series and we'll catch you guys later. Be sure to join our Facebook group. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth, same title as my book. And we'd love to connect with you there as well. Thanks guys, let's go. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Short-Term Show special episode series on Scottsdale. Today we are talking about all things financing and we have a great panel here to talk about that. You guys are familiar with Jessica and Leslie out in Scottsdale at this point, but we have Brenna Carls from The Mortgage Shop on. Also, Brenna, you want to introduce yourself and tell everybody a little bit about yourself before we get going? Yeah. Hey guys, my name is Brenna Carls. I'm the CEO and co-founder of The Mortgage Shop with Avery. So we specifically specialized in financing properties that you're interested in. So it's just short-term rentals, long-term rentals, and vacation home loans. So we're going to go through all of those types of loans uh, during this podcast. All right. So let's start with what I think is the easiest type of loan to find. This is the type of loan that if you can get it, I always recommend getting it. Like I said, it's the easiest to find. Uh, it's going to be annoying to get them all of your dots and everything, but typically always going to have the best rates. And that is conventional financing. So Brenna, do you want to walk us through how you are qualified for conventional financing and what that is? Yeah. So conventional financing goes off of your personal income and personal debt. So we will pull your credit. Um, we'll see all of your debts on your credit report. We go off of your credit score, your median credit score. So the middle credit score. And then we look at your income per month. We calculate that whether you're self-employed or W-2. Um, and then we look at your debt to income ratio and qualify you that way. Um, conventional wise, loan wise is the easiest loan, I believe, to qualify for if you're just getting started. It's got favorable terms. There's no you know, hidden agendas or prepayment penalties or anything like that. All right. And so what is debt to income ratio? Let's talk about that first. It's literally your debt divided by your monthly income. So your monthly debt divided by your monthly income. Things like um, electric bills, water, cable, internet doesn't count against your debt. It's only the debt that reports to your credit report that will count. Okay. So you are qualified based on how much money you make also versus how much money you are spending on your debts each month. So that's your primary home mortgage or your rent. That's your car payment, your student loans, all that stuff they're looking at. So the lower your debt to income ratio is, so the higher your income versus the lower amount that you are spent, the lower the amount that you're spending each month will determine how much you can qualify for. So these are the easiest types to find. You can walk into any brokerage or bank in the country and find conventional loans. But there are some things to to keep in mind. So um, you are going to be limited by your income. So if you make $30,000 a year, it's unlikely that you're going to go qualify for a million dollar property. Uh, so you have to keep that in mind. You can only get these types of loans in your personal name. So you cannot get them in an LLC. Not a huge deal, but just something to think about. And depending on, you, you really have to time these in terms of what you can qualify for. If you can only qualify for one property based on your debt to income, you kind of have to time it because 
typically lenders cannot count rental income from short-term rentals until they show up on your tax return. So if you buy one in February of one year, you may have to wait until the next year after taxes to get your second one. But if you buy one in November, get some income coming in and then file your taxes in April, you can buy your second one much more quickly. So what what I mean by this is that your it will the debt that you take out on the property will show up on your debt to income ratio, but the income will not show up typically until you file your next round of taxes. So keep that in mind. A lot of people mistakenly think that the minimum down payment on a single family conventional is 20 or 25%. It's actually 15%, which a lot of people don't realize. So that's pretty cool that you can put 15% down on a conventional investment loan. What else? Anything I'm missing on conventionals, Brenna? So you can, when you're getting an investment loan, uh, you can use proposed rental income to help offset your debt as well. And like Avery said, you can't, if it's a short-term rental, you'll have to wait and that year to file your tax return to use that actual income. But during the loan itself, you are able to use proposed rental income on that property um, that we get for you that comes back on your appraisal. And that can help offset your debt to income ratio for that specific deal. If you're getting a long-term rental, you can actually use a lease agreement in place of filing your tax return. So that's a benefit of a long-term rental over a short-term rental. But yeah, that's that's pretty much that in a nutshell. I know it is 15% down minimum for an investment-only property. But if this is your first time and you're just getting started and you really want to see if you know investing in, in properties and real estate is for you, there is a second home loan with 10% down. Now, your primary intent has to be to vacation there first, but you are allowed to rent out your property when you're not occupying it. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac allow you to do that. However, with whatever lender you're working with, you always want to ask them if they allow that because most lenders will have um, what's known as overlays or rules on top of what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will allow. Some banks, uh, credit unions, lenders, things like that will not let you rent out your second home at all. They'll even go as far as making you sign something saying you will not rent out your second home. So just be wary of that and always ask questions up front um, to get to know your lender and see if that's what they specialize in. Right. And guys, on the second home loans, so there's a lot of gray area when it comes to those, like trying to go get a bunch of partners and get a bunch of second home loans in the same market because it's such a low percentage down. Y'all don't do that. That's not a good thing to be doing. That is the kind of thing that is going to end up being deemed as mortgage fraud. Like you can have one in each market. And I really don't think that you should be like trying to go in with a bunch of partners and trying to make it. My, here's my thing. If you're running spreadsheets on it, it's probably an investment and you should probably just put down the extra 5% just to make sure that you're not doing anything wrong. The more you abuse this type of loan, the more trouble you can get in. So don't abuse that loan type. Uh, anything else on conventional before we move on? Let's talk. Well, Let's talk about like multi-units. You want to talk about that since the guidelines have changed? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't really have anybody that's going to be buying a primary home. Okay. Um, So we can skip that. But let's talk about, uh, let's talk about jumbo. What's a jumbo loan? So jumbo loan is just that the loan amount is over the conforming loan limit. Right now, we are allowing the conforming loan limit to be $750,000. That is the loan amount, not the purchase price. The purchase price would be higher. If you're getting a loan that's over 750000 then that's considered jumbo. A lot of people think, oh, well, jumbo loans are harder to get. And my question is, why, why is that? It's actually not. It's the same exact uh, loan process as you would get conventionally. 
It's just tiered as a jumbo loan because it sits outside of the conforming loan limits that Fannie and Freddie will allow. Um, it's the same guidelines, goes off the debt to income ratio. Um, you can do for jumbo investment only, it does go to 20% down as opposed to that 15% down. So just watch that. You are still able to use proposed rental income. Everything's the same. It's just a loan amounts higher. Okay. So, but for investment only, they do make you put 20% down if it comes to jumbo sized loans. So if it's 751 or higher, then you're going to have to put 20% down uh, to accommodate for that jumbo sized loan if you're doing investment only. What about second home? 10% down. Oh, you can still put 10% down on a um, second home loan. Yes. Okay. Awesome. That is good to know. All right. So let's move on to DSCR loans. So can you tell us what a DSCR loan is? Yeah. So DSCR stands for debt service coverage ratio. This type of loan is not conforming like Fannie and Freddie. It's It does not go off of your personal debt or personal income. It goes off the property or purchasing's proposed monthly rental income and the proposed monthly mortgage payment. You have to hit a debt service coverage ratio, which means Usually they want a one-to-one -one ratio. So let's say your mortgage payment per month is going to be $4,000. Then you want that rental income to come back, that proposed rental income to come back at $4,000 or higher to hit that one-to-one -one ratio. This is a minimum of 20% down. It's great for you guys. So remember Avery mentioned that you can't file your, you can't claim your short-term rental income until you file that year's tax returns. Well, let's say you're in the middle of that year and you've you capped out your debt to income ratio. This is a great product for you because it doesn't go off your personal debt to income ratio. Or if you went from a W-2 to a self-employed job and you don't have that two-year history yet, there's a lot of people out there like that. Forgot to mention that conventional will only allow you to have up to 10 max financed residential properties. So if you have a loan on the property, Fannie Mae allows you to go up to 10 properties. DSCR doesn't have a minimum finance property. So if you've hit that threshold of conventional loans finance, you can always do DSCR as well. Okay. So I think a lot of people, so basically when you're getting a DSCR loan, this is a loan that's given to you based on what the property will make. So you're not qualifying based on your own debt to income anymore. You're based on the property's ability to, or really your ability as a manager to make sure the property makes that debt service coverage ratio. Yes. Okay. These types of loans, guys, are great if maybe your income isn't that high, but you have a big down payment that you can make. You probably wouldn't qualify for a larger property. Uh, these are also great if you have just started 1099 work and maybe you don't have two years of income to show to get qualified for a conventional loan because that's how 1099 works. Um, or, you know, if you've had a big windfall again and you've got a bunch of cash, but you don't have the income to be able to qualify for these bigger loans, this can be a really great way to do it. But the interest rate on these is going to be higher. I see so many people get so excited about these and then they see the interest rate and they're like, well, that's not a good deal. Well, the bank, because that's a risky loan to give you, a loan just based on the idea that you are going to do well enough with this property to pay the mortgage, they're going to protect themselves monetarily in some way. And that's usually through the interest rate on these types of loans. But uh, these can be great because you can have unlimited finance properties. So with conventional, you can only have 10 you can get these right in your LLC. And um, it's not, like I said, it's not using your debt to income to qualify. So they can be really, really great, but you do have to make sure that you understand everything about them, which 
Also, Brenna, a lot of these have prepayment penalties. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So conventional, like I said, um, usually you're going to get a 30-year fixed loan, which means a 30-year amortized loan. Your rate does not change. For DSCR loans, it is a 30-year amortized loan, but sometimes it will have uh, prepayment penalties, which means, let's say, a three- to five-year prepayment penalty. If you get the loan, it can still be a 30-year fixed, but if you sell or refinance within the first three to five years, you will have what's known as a prepayment penalty, which is usually the interest accrued on the years one through five, whichever, whenever you sell it. So if you're selling in year four, then you'd only have to pay one year's worth of interest. There's different there's different rules to it depending on which lender you go with. But we also have options that are 30-year fixed with no prepayment penalty. Um, and they're actually, the rates are pretty comparable to investment-only conventional uh, Fannie Freddie. So whatever deal, you know, best fits your needs at the time, we, we would look at and, and see what best suits your your needs and your goals. Okay. So if you're getting a, a if you're going to buy a short-term rental with a DSCR and it's one of the ones that has a prepayment penalty. You need to make sure that you're ready to hold this for that amount of time. Uh, I've seen some people get in trouble with not running numbers very well and then wanting to turn around and sell on a DSCR loan you know, within a year or two and then being shocked at how much they're going to have to pay in that prepayment penalty. So just, just keep that in mind. Let's see. What, else, what other? I know I had another question on DSCR, but I lost it. Okay, let's talk about true commercial loans. So, Brenna, can you tell me what a commercial loan is? So, commercial loan is going to be typically something that you get from a bank. A lot of times they're 20-year amortized loans instead of 30, just depending on the bank or credit union. Uh, commercial loans, to me, are a little harder to get because you have to have an established relationship with that bank for them to want to do business with you. Usually, we recommend trying to get a lender local to the area, right? So, if you're from Kansas, when you're buying a property in Arizona, you may not have that established relationship with a bank in Arizona, unless it's a national bank. Um, and so you may have to work a little harder with your numbers to bring in and present to them, hey, this is uh, what I want to do. This is what I'm proposing. This is what I think it's going to make. You have to have all of your, your numbers together or they're not even going to look at you a second time. The difference with a, a commercial loan is it's not something that, okay, well, we'll look at your numbers, then we approve you on your debt to income. No, it usually goes to a board of directors at the credit union or bank and they look review it and then they approve you or not approve you. So when you're looking out for this, talk with your realtor and say, hey, I'm going to be getting a commercial loan. And that kind of signals to your realtor, maybe you should do a longer contract than 30 day contract. Uh, because you don't know if the commercial board of directors are going to have already met for the month. And they're not going to meet, and especially around the holidays or anything like that. You just want to be upfront with your your realtor and let them know what type of loan you're getting, so they can be prepared when they write your contract. Yeah, and how you find commercial loans. So, like Brenna said, the bank will either need to be local to you or local to the property. There's not like a big national commercial loan brokerage, or maybe there is, but I don't think so. And Typically, they want to be building a relationship because these are community banks. So they will have more flexibility in terms of approving you for things, in terms of sometimes rates, but just all of their terms are a little more flexible because they're doing what's called holding their own paper, which means they're not selling your loan to another loan servicer after the fact, but they're going to want you to have money in their bank. They're going to want to know that you're buying more than one property. They're going to want to see a full personal financial statement 
uh, which is a document that basically shows everything you have, whether it's assets, liabilities, everything you own in real estate, how much all of your businesses are making, how much money you make, how much cash you have, everything. They want that. They're going to want to see a business plan. Uh, so if you're planning to just go buy one property in Scottsdale, they're probably not going to approve you. But if you have a good PFS and a good business plan, and you're planning to buy multiple properties, you have a better chance of getting approved by a bank like that. But you know, you're probably not going to, if you're buying a house in Scottsdale and you live in Houston, you're probably not going to go to like a bank of the Midwest to do this loan. They're not going to give you a loan in the when you're in a random place to them, buying in a random place to them. So just keep that in mind. It is kind of like a movie. I've gotten a lot of, of commercial loans on our stuff and they take your PFS and your business plan and they go to what's called committee every week and they present it to everybody and they say, should we give this person a loan or not? And so again, can be pretty difficult to find. If you can find it, it is a pretty cool product and a pretty cool thing to have in your back pocket. But again, it's going to be pretty difficult if you're not planning to build a portfolio in a market. Now, national banks do have commercial sectors, guys, but they are going to have longer turn times and be very, very, very conservative over your local credit unions and local banks. Um, so that means it's going to be a longer turn time to get you closed, if at all, because they are very conservative and they'll go back and forth with each other about what they, they want to accept and what they don't. So just, just be wary of that. All right. So the last type of financing that I wanted to talk about is going to be creative financing. So that can mean any number of things. Owner financing is one. The big buzzword right now is subject to financing. So let's talk about owner financing first. This is typically only something that's going to work if the seller owns the property outright, if they don't have a mortgage on it. So basically, instead of the way owner financing works, instead of making a down payment to the bank and then making payments to them every month, you're making a down payment to the seller and then making payments to them every month. So you don't have to worry about pre-approvals and debt-to-income ratio and all this stuff. You're just doing it with the seller instead of a bank. So if the seller doesn't own it outright, just don't even ask. But I would like to point out that this owner financing and also subject to, which we'll talk to in a minute, talk about in a minute, is not typically very easy to find. A lot of people, especially if they're not distressed sellers, so if they don't have to sell, if they're not having to sell because the property is going to be foreclosed on or they're getting divorced or there's been a death or something, they... um they're probably going to want to just have you buy it conventionally, take their money and move on with their life. There's really not, I don't want to say there's no amount of money you could pay me, but I really don't want to be wrapped up with you as a buyer for X amount of years after the fact, chasing you down for payments and stuff. So typically you're going to have to pay more for a property to do either of these types. People will say, well, that's not a better deal than just buying it conventional. Well, duh, because if you're buying it conventional, they're taking their money and they're moving on at no risk to them. The, you're asking the seller to take on a lot of risk. So yes, you can pay me for taking on the risk of you, a random person who wants me to act as the bank. So um, keep that in mind. You're probably going to have, not always, you're probably going to have to pay a little more somewhere uh, than conventional. Uh, subject to is very similar to owner financing, but it's when there is an existing mortgage on the property. So this is pretty popular right now in the real estate investor influencer world where because a lot of people have, you know, 3% mortgages right now. And if you go get a new mortgage today, it's in the sevens. So people will, they don't assume the mortgage because typically the mortgage is not assumable, but they kind of take it over and start paying 
the making the payments on that 3% mortgage for the seller and then taking a second mortgage with the seller and paying them some amount of money per month on the equity. So let's say the house is a 500 has a $500,000 loan on it at 3%, you're but it's worth 700, you're buying it for 700, so you're going to take over that $500,000 loan, make those payments and then either, you're either going to give that seller that 200,000 cash in equity or you're going to make some smaller down payment and be paying them a, a second payment per month in addition to the one you're making on the $500,000 loan on that extra 200. So again, uh, there's a, a lot of things that have to line up both in terms of seller and buyer to make that work. There's a lot of ways you can really screw it up and get yourself in trouble. So make sure if that's the route you want to go, that you really do know what you're doing and that you've studied and that you've got a title company, an attorney who has done this a lot before and knows how to do it. I personally have never done it. If you can't tell, because it kind of makes me nervous. You could tell the way I'm talking, but it can be a really great tool. If a seller is a little bit distressed and would really like to get out of the property, it can be something that works really well for everyone. Just make sure that you know what you're doing. That always requires an attorney, not just your agent to write that up. Yeah. I want to reiterate the attorney part because people will ask, well, will that due on sale clause go into effect? If you've never heard of that, it's um, came about in 2007 and 2008 when we had what's known as straw buyers or people, uh, their friends were getting loans for them that they couldn't qualify. And then they would be the ones trying to pay the the note. And so you definitely don't want to just go about it and think that you're, you know, just going to get subject to you want an attorney to review it and review the terms of the loan to make sure that you aren't going to get in trouble for paying, you know, that other loan loan and things like that. So it's it's a lot to it than just offering to the the seller and hoping they agree with your terms. Um, another strategic financing plan is uh, what's known as a bridge loan. So in the older days, or they still have where you can take a loan from your existing property and buy another one. But this bridge loan is, let's say you are selling a property, but it's not closing until next month. But you really want this property that went on the market today. It's a great deal. A bridge loan is a very short-term loan, three to six months at most. And it will allow you to get that property before the other one sells. And then once that other one sells, you can pay off that loan or refinance into a uh, 30-year fixed loan. So there is that short-term loan, but you do have to have a plan in place to get out of that loan in three to six months, or they will not lend to you. I had a question about the um, subject too. So you're, you're basically saying that in the original loan, there they may or may not allow the seller or the property owner to do subject to. And if if you do it and without knowing that, then they could force you to sell the property. Is that what you're saying? So what Avery was talking about, assumable loans. So isn't a loan assumable? Some banks allow it, some banks don't. The only way that they would, it would they would call the note due. They wouldn't say you have to sell it. They would call, call the, the note, note due. due. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Um, the only way really though, they would, they would do that is if the person stopped making payments, mm. which the owner would know about anyway. So uh, because they're the ones that's getting the mortgage statements. So that's that's really the only way a bank would would call it due is if you went late on your payments because really they're not going to know it's being paid by somebody else. But right. I'm just telling people, you know, be cautious of that. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, anything else that we should talk about related to loans? Oh, let's talk about HELOCs 
for a minute. Brenna, what's a HELOC? So HELOC is a home equity line of credit. So if you already own your primary residence or other investment properties or second homes, you can get a home equity line of credit on it if uh, the bank or lender allows for it. And that's just pulling from the equity you already own in that property. Um, be very careful with that, though. You don't want to strap yourself um, financially and pulling out all your equity just to buy this other property. And then you're struggling to make this payment over here. If you're running numbers, guys, remember that you want to include running your HELOC numbers as well to make sure it's going to be a good deal if that's your only avenue of money to pull for that property. But yeah, you can do a home equity line of credit. If you already have a mortgage on your property, it would go into a second lien place instead of the first lien. Um, and you just get cash at closing, kind of like a cash out refinance, but you can pay it and get it back kind of like a credit card. So it's revolving um, if you want to do that. And here's my take on that. And I've done these before. I've done one of these before. So I, I took out a $20,000 HELOC on my primary home and paid it back as soon as possible. What I don't want to see you guys doing is taking out like $300,000 HELOCs when you've got $400,000 of equity in, in your primary home and going and buying a bunch of rental properties. Or I see people, I see investors, influencers all the time who will you know, get do some kind of reel and show you a property that they bought for like 600 five years ago and show you how they have pulled all this equity out. Now it's worth a million and they've got 400,000 in equity that they've pulled out to go buy other properties. And then like, I know for a fact that that first property is probably no longer cash flowing at this higher cash out refi or HELOC or whatever you're doing, uh, the, any number of ways of doing it uh, with all of this extra debt on it at the interest rates today, probably not cash flowing. So if what I don't want you guys to do is see all of these products and see all of this equity that you might be able to pull out of places and then over leverage yourself. Uh, it's okay, you know, if you need 50 grand and you've got 500,000 in equity. Okay, I'm like kind of okay with that, but I don't want to see you guys leveraging yourselves to the absolute teeth to go buy more properties to the point that the properties that you're HELOCing or cash out refinancing are no longer cash flowing because that kind of defeats the purpose of the entire investing thing. So does anybody have anything to add to that? I just had a question because it's it's been asked of me and I didn't really know how to answer it. But when clients do a HELOC and they're at the interest rates that they are right now, are you able to refi HELOCs as well at any point or how does that work? It's an adjust, usually HELOCs are adjustable rate. So they go to whatever the market rate is. So they also need to keep that in mind because if they're, you know, closing at a 9% interest rate right now and the rates go up, they could, you know, go up to 11 and a half, 12. Um, I looked at a HELOC term the other day and like the rate cap was 15%. Um, so it could go all the way up to 15%. So you also want to be wary of that, but it's not like, yeah, it can go down. Uh, according to the market. And it's not a refinance thing. You either just, you know, pay it off or um, you can do a, a refinance of your first mortgage and just roll that into it if you want to pay that mm -hmm. off all at once. Um, but there's no like refinancing, just a HELOC to, to lower the rate because the rate just goes to market. Great questions. Uh, anything else that we need to touch on before we close out? I just say a HELOC again, uh, if it's on your primary residence, usually I say you want to be able to cover that with your, you know, nine to five job if you still have one and not bank on the property making money to pay that off because it is on your primary residence. So just just be conservative that with that, guys. For reserves on your properties, I always say a minimum of six months would be safe. So when you're closing on a property, if you're 
property mortgage is three thousand a month, and you you want to make sure you have at least six months reserves on that just to have a cushion for you for the slower times um, that the property isn't renting. Did we talk about condos? Should we throw condos in there? I know. Oh yeah, let's talk about non warrantable condos. So Brenna, can you talk about? Uh, non-warrantable condos and the types of financing required for that? Yeah. So non-warrantable condos in the areas that we specialize in are generally deemed non-warrantable because there are more second home and investment units than there are primary residence units. A non-warrantable condo can be deemed non-warrantable for other things like the HOA being in current litigation where they're the ones being sued upon, or let's say it's a, a tornado or a hurricane or something like that came through and it damaged the condo. It will be deemed non-warrantable until those repairs are made to that condo. But most of the time in our, our areas, it's just because there's more second home and investment property units than there are primary residence units. Then there's condo tells. Condo tell is exactly what it sounds like. It acts and operates as a hotel. You go in, you they, they hand you a key card to the units in there. So everybody and their mom that works there has access to your unit. So that's the difference between a non-warrantable condo and condo tell. For non-warrantable condos, um, you definitely want to check the local banks and credit unions to see if they have a lower down payment option. Otherwise, you're generally going to be looking at 20% down for a non-warrantable condo. But I do know that there are local banks and credit unions that like to get local business. So they they do offer non-warrantable condo loans with a lower down payment. So always double check on those. How often do you see non-warrantable over warrantable? Is it a common thing? 98% of the time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> yeah. There's like maybe some that are just like really run down that are still considered warrantable that haven't really, you know, upticked yet. But most of the time it's, it's just non-warrantable in the in the vacation markets we're in. Gotcha. Yeah. Typically, if if it's a condo building that's going to be short-term rental friendly, it's going to be non-warrantable. Because if it's a bunch of primary homeowners, you probably don't want to buy in there because then you run the risk of them deciding they don't want short-term rentals in there and changing the rules and all that. So non-warrantable sounds bad, but that's actually right. right. It does. It does sound <laughs> scary. And I myself, I was under contract on a condo years and years ago and I didn't know any better and I was told it was non-warrantable. I was like two weeks through and so I terminated the contract. I was like, well, I don't have cash. And so it it is something that's really scary to people. It's scary sounding, but it's really not a big deal at all. It's just a different type of financing. HOA fees for condos and and plan unit development. So HOA fees can be on condos. Most of the time you will see an HOA fee on um, a condo. And then if you're in a plan unit development like a neighborhood that has an HOA those do count against your monthly debt. So keep that in mind. Um, when we pre-approve you or when your lender pre-approves you, they should pre-approve you for the highest amount possible. We always put a little cushion in there for an HOA fee just in case. Like I told you guys in the beginning, things like electric, cable, internet don't count against your debt to income. Sometimes those are lumped into an HOA fee, which can be very convenient. But if they are, then that monthly do will count against your debt to income ratio. And is the HOA payment included in the mortgage payment? So it's not included in the mortgage payment. They will uh, pay the HOA dues at closing if they are due. Yeah. Or if the seller has already paid them, then that will reflect in the closing disclosure. And then the uh, new owners will then be responsible to pay the HOA whenever that's due. So no, it's not part of the mortgage payment. We don't, as a lender, don't have anything to do with it. We just do count that against their monthly debt to income ratio. Got it. All right. Well, great conversation, guys. Uh, Y'all, if you want to buy a short-term rental with our team in Scottsdale, you can email us at agents at the short-term shop.com and we will get you connected. Or if you just want to hang out with us some more, you can do that 
in our Facebook group. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. Same title as my book behind me. Brenna, if they would like to get a loan with the mortgage shop, where can they do that? Yeah. So you can uh, call us at 800-816-7982. You can go to our website. It's just www.mortgage.shop. Pretty simple. Or you can email me if you if you have any personal questions. It's Brenna, B-R-E-N-N-A at mortgageshop.co. We were too late to get .com, so just .co. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on, and we will catch you on a later episode. <laughs> <laughs>